This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today, we are continuing our way through the book of Acts. Uh, We've taken a couple-week break from that, but we're back in it. January is also our Kingdom Builders Month at Christian Chapel, and so every January, we put a, a big focus on how we can be part of what God is doing all over the world. Kingdom Builders at Christian Chapel is how we fund the work of God globally, uh, some extra outreach investments locally, and also some special investments in next generation ministry internally. When you give to Kingdom Builders, it's over and above giving. I haven't seen the the final numbers yet, but I believe last year we gave well over $500,000 through our Kingdom Builders giving to support the work of 60 missionaries. Absolutely. 60 missionaries uh, and ministries working in 30 nations around the world. We support local ministries like Royal Family Kids Camp and Mentoring Club, Crisis Pregnancy Outreach, Mend Pregnancy Care Clinic, Crossover Community Impact working in North Tulsa, and also make some next generation investments in youth and kids camp scholarships, mission trip scholarships, and an internship program for future church leaders. So as we work through the month, we'll be telling you more about our plans for Kingdom Builders in 2024 and how we can participate in that. In January, we're welcoming in a couple guest speakers who are going to help us expand our vision and embrace a, a more global vision of the church and how we can be part of what God is doing all over the world. So it's always a fun month for us. But as we're jumping into that, uh, Kingdom Builders and the Book of Acts go hand in hand because the story of Acts is a story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And the kingdom of God is the story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And as you work through the story of Acts, what you find again and again and again is the story of God's kingdom advancing in new places among new people in powerful and transformational ways. And we've said all the way through that the story of Acts is not just a descriptive story of our past, but it's a prescriptive story for our future and our present. That the stories we read then are still the stories we should be living now. This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. And we're going to talk about how the the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, grace, and grace. And what you see in Acts 15 is a temptation to take a kingdom of grace and turn it back into a kingdom of rules. And you see a resounding rebuke from the early church leaders, inspired by the Holy Spirit under the authority of the Father, to make it clear to us this is a kingdom of grace, grace, grace. I think it's a a wonderful idea for us to return to on the first Sunday of the year. New Year's resolutions are popular for some of us, and most New Year's resolutions take their form in, in some kind of list or almost feeling like rules of life that you are placing on yourself. And if you're particularly good at New Year's resolutions, you probably look down at others who are not, right? And, uh, and have that feeling of like, well, if I can do it, why can't these bums? And what we're going to find in Acts chapter 15 this morning is an unending religious temptation to think, if I can follow these rules, why can't these bums? And Peter's going to come along and tell us, we're all bums. And we all need the grace of Jesus, right? So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 15, we'll start in verse 1. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, 
You cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So today's passage really confronts this temptation that we all face to want people to be like us, to be accepted by Jesus as we have been, right? And, and so there's, there's a, a really common way that we read Acts chapter 15 and, and a way that we read most stories. Most stories that you read, you identify with the hero, not the villain, right? If you identify with the villain in all the stories you read, go to counseling, because there's something off inside there, right? Your family's worried about you. You're on some watch lists when you travel. Like, just nobody's real sure. Like, we're, we're not naturally inclined to identify with the villain. In Acts 15, the villains are the people who come and say, you've got to follow all of these rules to really be saved. And so we read Acts 15, and we easily just put ourselves on the side of Peter and Paul and Barnabas and say, yep, I would never do anything like that. But before we vilify and distance ourselves from these men who come from Jerusalem, we have to identify why do they do the things they do and why do they come with such a forceful message of, unless you're like us, you can't be saved. And at its core, there's a couple things that we'll explore this morning. The first is just this natural inclination that we all have of, I like people who are like me and you like people who are like you. I would say it's a pretty safe bet this morning to assume that none of us have made a New Year's resolution to hang out with more people that we don't like this year, right? Like nobody's like, you know what I really want? I want to invest 20 to 30 hours a week with people who annoy me in every single thing that they do. No one's looking for, you don't, you're not looking to walk into a room and just have the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you hear their voice or see their face. Friendships are built around shared interests, around common experiences, and that's good, and that can be holy, and that can be wonderful. The foundation, if you're married this morning, hopefully the foundation of your marriage is in some sense shared interests, common belief, and shared experience. Right? When, if you're single and you're looking for a spouse, you're probably looking for someone who is somewhat like you. And that's good. And no one should make you feel bad about that. 
In fact, one of the foundations of Christian community is shared experience in Jesus Christ. It's the thing that unites us together. It's the thing that causes us to form deep and meaningful friendships. And so Acts 15 is not a message of stop hanging out with people who are like you, right? Because we understand close-knit communities are formed and strengthened around shared interests and common experiences. The problem that Acts 15 is addressing is when we begin to make the things we like prerequisites for salvation or additional requirements to take your place in Christian community. And so the point of Acts 15 is you and I, regardless of our backgrounds, if we have been united together through the grace of Jesus Christ, then I don't have to like your music and you don't have to like my music for us to worship Jesus together. Right? It means when we go to home groups tonight, you don't have to vote like me and I don't have to vote like you for us to be followers of Jesus. If you're single, I don't have to be single like you and you don't have to be married like me for us to find common interests, common goals, and common areas of service. If you don't have kids and I do have kids, it doesn't mean that there's this gulf between us that can never be crossed. Acts 15 is going to tell us over and over and over again, it's fine for you to like people who are like you. You just need to understand the central message of the gospel is Jesus is the creator of all things, the savior of everyone, and he overwhelms every cultural distinction that has been placed and used as a source of division among us. So this is where we're going to come back to over and over and over again, that the story of Jesus, the experience of the gospel is grace, grace, and more grace. And so what we find happening in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the church in Antioch is some distance from Jerusalem. It's made up of largely Gentile believers. We've already seen as we've worked our way through the Acts how the gospel goes and grows in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are sent there. They affirm this is a work of God. And then in Acts 15, what we see is an example of when our preferences become poison because we begin to use them as prerequisites or additional requirements for salvation. The message these certain leaders, certain men bring from Jerusalem is not, hey, there are some good moral laws in the Old Testament that you should follow. It's not, there are some reasonable requirements from Moses that you can consider. They come and their message is, unless you are circumcised and follow the law taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And so the reason that Paul and Barnabas are brought into such sharp disagreement is they understand exactly what's happening here. Verse 2 says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. See, when when our preferences become poison, it begins to separate us from other believers. Now, again, we can look at this and think, well, I'm glad I don't have the problem that they had. 
And yet, if we're honest, what we will find is we can sit here this morning and say, I agree that everyone everywhere is saved by grace through Jesus Christ. And yet, when it comes to our actual experience of living in Christian community and being willing to share the message of grace with others, we quickly default to we're saved by grace, but it's going to be more helpful if you're like me so you can experience that grace. And you'll go down your own checklist, and and we all have our checklist of what we think the ideal Christian should look like. And the ideal Christian, shockingly, always looks like you. Have you ever noticed that? Like, the ideal Christian has all of my interests and preferences. The ideal Christian has my stage of life and status in life. The ideal Christian lives in the part of the world where I live. The ideal Christian makes the choices for their children that, shockingly, that I've made for my children. The ideal Christian watches what I watch, listens what I listen to, and agrees with what I agree with. Perhaps even the ideal Christian cheers for the teams that I cheer for. The ideal Christian votes, definitely votes for the candidates I vote for. Right? The, the ideal Christian has the same interests that I have. The ideal Christian uses their, dis, their discretionary income as I use it. The ideal Christian eats the food that I eat. The ideal Christian embraces a view of life that I embrace. And so what we begin to understand as we read Acts chapter 15 is this is not an old temptation that we don't deal with anymore. It's an ongoing plague that the enemy seeks to infect in the church. Where we agree we're saved by grace, but let's add these few other things to it. Or you might be saved by grace, but you're barely saved by grace. And I'm really saved by grace. Because look at all my, I heard what you said when I rode in the car with you and they cut you off. So you can't possibly be a Christian. Or if you are, you're just barely a Christian. Right? But me, I'm really a Christian. Because I said, gosh darn it. Not, well, I didn't say what you said, right? Again, we've got all of these little rules that we start to lay on and start to apply. When this first incorporates itself into the church, the early church leaders do not stand up and say, we think this is a bad idea. It says this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them. There is no sitting around and trying to decide, is this something that's right or wrong? For Paul and Barnabas, they are sure and certain. God has already spoken. We are saved by grace alone. All are welcomed into the family of God, and there are no additional requirements necessary to be saved except faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. There's no prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. For Paul and Barnabas, this is not just their individual decision, but it's been the preaching of the church. You find it all through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus told the disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus gives the disciples their commandment to go and preach the gospel everywhere, he tells them they're going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, which obviously will include non-Jewish people. And his instruction is to go and witness for him, not to advocate for more rule-keeping or more prevalence of the law in the world around them. Acts chapter 2, verse 17, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter is explaining what has happened, he tells the people there, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God will pour his spirit out on all people. 
people from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39, when the people say, well, what are we supposed to do in this new kingdom and with this new revelation? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So again, it's not, hey, what are you supposed to do? Go get circumcised. Once you've recovered, come back, learn about the laws, change the way you dress, give up bacon, do all these sorts of things. He says, no, 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 just repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And just in case they still don't get it, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And in an Acts 2 Jewish perspective, there is no one more far off from the gospel than the Gentile. No one farther than you and I, because we've lived outside of the law of Moses, because we have not been ceremonially clean, because we wear the wrong things, we eat the wrong things, we celebrate the wrong feasts and festivals. We are as far from God as you can possibly be, and yet Peter says this promise is for them too. And the promise is they're going to repent, they're going to be baptized, and they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And then one more time in Acts 4.12, in case we still haven't got it, he tells us, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, which in an Acts 15 context means not even the name of Moses, not even the name of Abraham, not even the name of Israel. We are saved through Jesus Christ alone. And so when Paul and Barnabas see this preference turning to poison, they take the matter to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. It's settled in their hearts, but they want it to be settled once and for all in the heart of the church. So in Acts 15, verse 6, it says, The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And so what really Peter is, is pointing us towards is this idea of when preferences become poison, they always create division. And, in, and this is the same challenge that you and I continue to face and to deal with this morning. Of As we launch into a Kingdom Builders Month, it's easy to say, I believe the whole gospel should go to the whole world, and I believe the whole world will say yes to Jesus, and then I believe the whole world should become like me. And their culture should look like my culture. And their worship should look like my worship. And their politics should look like my politics. And their economics should look like my economics. And the structure of their home should look like the structure of my home. And the plan for their future should look like my plan for the future. And what we wind up doing is the exact same thing that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are so adamantly opposed to in Acts chapter 15. We're turning our preferences into requirements for full entrance into Christian community. And the gospel is abundantly clear. This is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is grace, grace, grace. And I, I can already feel the objections that some of us have in our heart, because it's an objection that I have in my heart too, of like, well, but you don't know what people are going to do if you just give them grace. They're going to go nuts. Let's get some rules in here. We've got to restrict We've got to control, we've got to legislate, we've got to make sure people don't run off the deep end, we've got to make, we don't, the last thing we want is for them to abuse this grace. 
Now, we, we can get to that in a moment, and we'll continue as we work through the story of Acts to address that idea. But for this morning, what we really have to wrestle with is this idea of you are saved by grace alone. It's nothing you've done, and it's nothing that I've done. And that grace is great news for us individually. Because we all love to hear the story that in your lowest moment, in your darkest hour, in your ugliest and most messed up condition, Jesus extends grace to you. That's what we want. The hard part to understand is that your enemy, the person you don't like, the person who's evil just absolutely disgusts you, can be a recipient of the same grace that you've received. And this is where we're having conflict in Acts chapter 15. They're glad that there are believers in Antioch. But certain people from Jerusalem feel as if these believers in Antioch have an incomplete experience of being in God's kingdom. And so they show up and they tell them, hey, you need Jesus and you need the law. And Jesus and the law together, now you got it. Now you're going to make it. And and I I love the way that Peter addresses this one final objection. He says in Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter is in essence saying, listen, I know that you want to follow rules, but will you please just remember for a second you're a terrible rule follower? And will you remember that your mom was a terrible rule follower and your dad was a terrible rule follower and your grandma who loved the Lord and and memorized the Torah was a terrible rule follower? Will you remember that generation after generation after generation, the story of our people is God has given us his law and we are law breakers, not law keepers. Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of Acts chapter 15 says it this way puts Peter's words into modern language and says, why are you now trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too. I love that phrase of out-God God. Because is there anything that describes religious rules, legalism, and rituals more than human attempts to out-God God? And what Peter's trying to help them understand is when you lead with rules, it leads to death. He's saying, you've never kept the law. Jesus came because you couldn't keep the law. The function of the law, if we had time this morning, we could start working our way through Romans, which teaches us the function of the law is to reveal our inability to keep the law. It's to bring us to a point of desperation where we see Jesus as the one who perfectly and finally fulfills the law for us. And so this morning, if you're here and you think, I can't be a Christian because I'm bad at rules, what Peter's saying is actually you're, you're in the right spot this morning. Because here's the secret that church people don't want you to know. We're all bad at rules. There, there is no, I'm, we, some of us, we've been around this long enough to know that the people who are the most proud of their rule keeping usually have the scariest skeletons in their closet. And they think, if I can just prove my external holiness here, no one's going to really take time to know what's in here. 
And and that the darkness in that space, there's a place of desperation, there's a place of loneliness that they try to cover up with their rule keeping. And I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. When when we're trying to please God with our rule keeping, we're trying to out-God God. We're trying to say, Lord, I, I see what you did there with Jesus. I just feel like I have a little better option over here. I will receive him, but I also want you to know I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm pretty good. I know I don't totally deserve the grace, and, and yet, Lord, I think I, I kind of do deserve the grace more than some of these other people. And watch my giving, and watch my serving, and observe my restraint when I'm angry, and, and, and observe all of my religious participation. And this is what these certain people from Jerusalem are doing. They're coming down to Antioch to tell the people, you need Jesus and. And still today, for many of us, the temptation is to think that we need Jesus and good works. That we need Jesus and our own righteousness. That we need Jesus and our discipline. That we need Jesus and our annual Bible reading plan. That we need Jesus and our certain numbers of days that we're going to fast a year. That we need Jesus and a certain number of hours that we pray a day. That we need Jesus and a certain percentage of our income that we give away. And when we give, and when we read, and when we pray, we have somehow proven that we are now worthy of the grace that we have received. And yet what the scriptures teach us is the only thing that makes you worthy of grace is your unworthiness. And Paul will later be the one who tells us all my righteousness is filthy rags. There's nothing I can offer to him. And and so really what happens, the reason that we tend to shout our rules and whisper grace is because when we're leading with rules, what we're really trying to do is remove the scandal of grace. We're trying to, I mean, just if you stop and think about the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, especially compared to every other world religion, you understand why there's a desire to add rules to it. Christianity is the the only religion that says you can be made perfectly and completely right with God in a moment without doing a single thing. It's not about your giving. It's not about your serving. It's not about your reading. It's not about your praying. It's not about if you go on a mission trip or if you don't. It's not about any of this. It's only about what Jesus has already accomplished for you. And yet, there is something inside of us that even as we are thankful to receive that grace, that rises up and says, but that's not fair. Because maybe it's good for me, because I grew up in a church and I really wasn't that bad to start with. But there's some really bad people out there, and I don't know that it should be that easy for them. And yet what the gospel says is, you're not as good as you think you are. You're actually just as bad as them. Remember, what's Peter's essence? We're all bums. And so we all need abundant and overflowing grace. And yet when we think of our own experience, how many people do we know who have been turned off from Jesus because of believers who led with rules instead of grace? Because we sometimes present this idea of you're welcome to worship with us. As long as you look like us and talk like us and act like us and eat like us and believe like us and vote like us and cheer like us. You're welcome to come in as long as you check the box of believing in Jesus and these 27 subcategories that we have identified as essential to our experience of Jesus Christ. Now, now again, I know for some of us, it's like, yeah, but listen, you, you better be careful. You're making it too easy. Right now, you're just saying anyone can come in in whatever condition of life they're in. They can be a follower of Jesus. And that's exactly what I'm saying. 
And if that offends you, and honestly, it offends me at times. And the reason it offends me is because that means there's going to be some people coming into the kingdom who make me uncomfortable, who are going to talk like I don't talk, who are going to believe things that I don't believe. But, but here's where we're, we're coming to in Acts chapter 15. It's not that your life will not be transformed after you say yes to Jesus Christ. It's that your life will not be transformed until you say yes to Jesus Christ. And so the expectation of the church should not be that before you're converted, you're a fully mature disciple. But it's, hey, just come with all your nonsense, accept the grace of Jesus, and we'll work it out together. We can walk through the mess. We can walk through these experiences. Because here, here's the thing, the, the law of Moses that they were coming and wanting to apply, it wasn't all bad. There's some really good stuff in the law of Moses. There are life-giving principles that many of us still live by today in the law of Moses. The rules that, that many of us have adopted in our life, they're, they're life-giving in many ways. But when we lead with them, they lead to death. Because any form of religion that depends on perfect obedience to rules and laws is destined to fail. That's why Jesus comes through grace alone, only, only, only through his grace can we be saved. And that's where, where Peter winds up our portion this morning, Acts chapter 15, verse 11. He says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter reminds the church that God's kingdom is all grace. Church is built by the grace of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and reveals our sin as a gift of grace. The Holy Spirit comes and reveals Jesus to us as a gift of grace. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we're acting on the faith he has given us as a gift of his grace. When we take our place in the body of Christ, we do so through the grace of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons and the daughters of God, that's an experience of the the grace of Jesus Christ, when God pours out the Holy Spirit on us, that's a gift of grace. When we are baptized in water, it's a physical expression of the grace of God that we have died to our old way of life and been raised to new life in Jesus because of what he's accomplished for us. When God speaks to you about the paths he has for you, it's a gift of his grace. When he releases his gifts in your life, gifts of faith and wisdom and knowledge and miracles and healing, those are experiences of his grace. When the Holy Spirit sows his fruit inside of you of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, those are experiences of grace. When you make gifts, it's because of the grace that God has given you. When you use your gifts to serve others, it's because of the grace that God has poured out on you. When you experience every success, it's because God's grace is with you. When you are encouraged in grief, it's because of of the grace of Jesus Christ. When you are knit together in Christian community, it's because the grace of Christ overwhelms every obstacle and every division. And what Acts 15 is trying to drill into the church from our inception is we are a church of grace, grace, and more grace. And so for us, as we launch into another year, my prayer for you is more than 2024 will be a year of performance, that it will be a year of grace. 
It will be a year where you come to understand, to know, and to experience the grace of Jesus Christ in personal and powerful ways. That your heart will be transformed, that as the Holy Spirit brings a realistic recognition of who we are without Jesus, that it will awaken your heart and mind to the experience of grace that God has for you. And the beautiful thing about grace is when you experience it, you can't help but share it. Because you begin to understand, I didn't do anything for this, and yet it has completely transformed me. And so grace becomes the foundation for kingdom builders. Grace becomes the foundation for living as a light in the darkness. Grace becomes the foundation of uniting a husband to a wife and a father to a son and a mother to a daughter. Grace becomes the foundation of every relationship that we have. Grace covers over sin. Grace offers us a new path of life. Grace even inspires our spiritual disciplines and all of the rules and procedures that we follow. See, when you have a true and deep understanding of grace, you don't really have to worry about abusing it because you understand the significance of what Christ has done for you. The band's going to come back. They're going to lead us in a final song this morning. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us. Jesus, we come to you today on the first Sunday of 2024, and we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us in these moments. Jesus, will you make much of your grace in our life? Will you help us to understand, Lord? I pray especially for those who maybe this morning they feel somehow disqualified or unworthy of your grace. Today, Lord, will you come and begin to speak personal and powerful words that draw them into a relationship with you. Jesus, we believe that you are with us and you are for us. We believe that you are working and you are moving to draw each of us deeper into a relationship with you. And so Holy Spirit, in these moments, we pray that you would make the grace of Christ personal and powerful. Forgive us for spaces and places and relationships where we have tried to insist on rule keeping and rule following. And instead, Lord, help us to be people who not only experience grace, but people who share grace. Jesus, we ask that this year would be one where your grace is abundant, your grace is transformational, And your grace motivates every relationship, every ministry, every opportunity that we have both individually and together as a community. Lord, we want to be a community that is bound together by the grace of Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that you would continually overcome and overwhelm the divisions that we are tempted to put in place between us and other believers that you would overcome and overwhelm the objections we have about some who are outside your kingdom being brought in. Lord, help us today to be people, individuals, and a community who embrace and live in the grace of Jesus every day. Lord, I pray if there's anyone with us who has not yet made that decision to surrender their life to you, today, Lord, may they start a new year with new life in Christ. May they discover the transformational nature of your grace, repent of their sins, receive you as Savior, and walk in the new life you have for them. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us in all things, in our experiences of grace and our opportunities to share it this year. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.